Please, let us pray. Iron Fist, who art the prisoner, Trevor be thy name. Revolver Glove and Fog Man, podcast be thy game. Give us this day our weekly podcast to expose those who are trespassed against us. Lead us not into superstition, but deliver us from bullshit. For thine is the podcast, for the politics and the ethics, for the beer and the banter. Amen. 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 <laughs> Welcome, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, and this is episode 232. It's the 11th of December 2019. I am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. Every week we sit around some microphones, talk about what's going on in the world, and discuss the issues. With me, as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. How are we all? They're good. We're and good. Al- and also, Paul the Twelfth Man. Hi, everyone. How are you? And a special guest. If you're watching on the live stream, you would see a fourth image appearing there. Friend of the program, Mark, <laughs> and friend of the Twelfth Man. Welcome aboard, Mark. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, um, Paul. Yeah, no problem. So Mark is going to uh, talk about his special interest topics uh, once we get through this religious discrimination bill. So Mark is an expert in could take us a little while. Russian affair. Well, Mark, you've got an interest in Russia. You speak mm, Russian. You're yep. born in Brisbane, but yes. you speak multiple languages, including Russian, and you've got an interest in Russian politics well, foreign and history policy, and foreign European policy, foreign policy, Russian foreign policy. Yeah, yep. great. So. Um, so once we get through this religious discrimination stuff, we'll we'll wander over into Russia and what's Let's going take on a there. Wander. Yeah. So stick with us. If you're in the chat room, say hello because it's nice to know that there's people there. And we'll kick off with Scott. Four and a half years ago, we started a <laughs> podcast talking about the problems of religious <laughs> interference, <laughs> religious interference in our lives, in our politics, and now the bastards are going to codify it and put it into a piece of legislation that. They are actually seriously debating and considering, mm. whereas most free-thinking people would have said, uh, no, we don't need this shit. So, yeah, so I am extraordinarily pissed off right. with this legislation. Yeah, right. And I've not even finished reading everything that you've sent me. Right. But I am very angry. Well... Have so, another drink. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you might recall that they were thinking about a, a bill, so they called for submissions, and we all they madly did. wrote submissions yeah. about what we thought of the of of the Ruddock Review and what we thought of religious discrimination bill. They came out with one, and incredibly favourable to religious interests. And except uh, the religious interests complained that it wasn't giving them enough privilege, right. and they. And this government has said, bent over backwards for said, You know what? We haven't given enough no. uh, privilege to religious groups. We'll go even harder. That's we'll right. give even more privilege. Yeah. What a surprise to us all. So just briefly, I've got some notes uh, in the show notes. You can read those. I've got links to, the, uh, to this second draft of the bill. But previously it sort of said that certain religious groups could discriminate against people if it was in accordance with their religious doctrine, and that was in employment and other things. And part of the argument with that, with one of the problems with that was going to be, well, what is conduct within a religious doctrine? It was going to potentially be a secular judge deciding whether certain conduct or doctrine was actually part of the doctrine of that church or not. So 
what they've now done is they've changed the definition to say, well, if any um, particular people within the faith think that that was part of the doctrine, then that's good enough. Really? Yes. They just have to think it. So that's right. If, if enough, if there's so a handful. So they don't have to enough, demonstrate that it was actually a part of the traditional doctrine. So if there's enough Israel Falaus out there yeah, saying exactly. one thing, exactly. then they're going to follow it. And, of course, yeah. as we know, the Israel Falaus of the world make it up as they go along. Absolutely. They do. So what you need is conduct as a person of the same religion as the religious body could reasonably consider to be in accordance with the doctrines, tenets, beliefs or teachings of that religion. Mm. So because obviously within religions there's a wide spectrum of different beliefs mm -hmm. and some crazy um, way, out, way out there theories on religion could be perfectly, mm. you know, uh, conduct done in good faith uh, that's in line with the most nutty ideas uh, will not be discrimination <laughs> under this act. Mm. <laughs> Providing someone in that religious body thinks it's part of their doctrine. <laughs> this is the whole point. This is what I was reading this afternoon and I got incredibly angry about that, mm. incredibly angry. What they've also done is they've expanded the, the categories of religious bodies mm. that can do this stuff as well. So yeah, they had a definition of religious body that can discriminate in terms of offering services and discriminate in terms of offering uh, uh, employment, mm. preferring to hire a Catholic rather yeah. than an Anglican, yeah. for example. Uh, there was no mention, well, they previously excluded um, groups such as, let me find them. Um, well, there was that thing about the Religious chairs, hospitals, aged care facilities and religious accommodation providers. Those groups now, which they weren't allowed to under the first draft, they're now allowed to discriminate in terms of employment. Mm-hmm. That's outrageous, isn't it? It is. Mm. I mean, particularly aged care is a huge employer. It's a huge industry. Exactly. And there are a lot of people out there who are probably more than qualified and suitable for the work, but if they don't uh, cough up some sort of affiliation with the required religious body, they don't get a look in. Want a job at a nursing home? Better go look up what religion it is. and mass every week. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, like get we... Get a letter from your priest. We had that example... Last week that, of an IT job, job where yeah. you were required to provide the name of your parish priest, priest so they reference. could give him and his phone number so you could you could contact him. This was for an yeah. IT job, Mark. So mm. this is what these groups are now gonna do when they're employing somebody in an aged care facility, doing the most basic things from changing beds to preparing meals or whatnot. That's right. It it's it honestly, if you were wanting to create some sort of Christian Gilead in mm. Australia. This, this is the, the first, first thing you do. Yeah. Yeah. So so there we go. The religious groups have won. Does and here's you know, last week we also uh let's we, hope they haven't won. I mean they're, they're, I think they're gonna get this up, but then as it starts to filter through, as people get knocked back for jobs, as they start saying, Oh, well, you can't come into our facility because you're XYZ then I think the secular majority are going to get so pissed off that they're going to demand it get changed. Mm. Let's hope it doesn't it get will. through the Senate. Well, Do you think it will? 
Uh, it depends. Labor is probably going to back them up on this. They'll buy off the crossbenchers, I suppose. No, they won't have to buy off the crossbenchers. I reckon Labor's going to wave it through. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Labor's... They will. Labor's gone to water completely on it. Absolutely, they have. Yeah. Yeah. It'll go through and people will be preferenced in terms of employment Mm. on whether they're a Catholic or whatever, depending on the religious organisation. It's astounding. Nobody cares. And remember how... Last week I showed that statistic where they had done a survey and they said, which is closer to your own view? Please select one of these options. And one was no organisation should be allowed to refuse to employ someone on religious grounds. 64% of Australians think that. Mind you, 30% think they should be able to. Yeah, I know. (laughs) The government, these are facts that... They the would government be would be aware of, but, they don't of, but care. and the government went and backed the thirty percent rather than the sixty-four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and of course Morrison comes out with this silent majority bullshit, you know, and, and he uses it to justify pushing his own <clears throat> minority viewpoint through the parliament in the form of legislation. So you know, over the next month or two, all sorts of secular rationalist groups will write all sorts of submissions about be how totally unfair this is. They're completely ignored. It's a waste of time. Mm. If you're out there, it's a waste of time. This government is not listening. They don't care. They are well, ideological nutbags. I don't think you should turn Dean Stretton off. G'day, Dean. How are well, you? Yeah. Because Dean, no, writes, Dean. Dean writes some brilliant submissions. He, does, he, he does. did some excellent work. But you can't help you know, thinking it's, it's still it's, it's lip waste. service. They're just paying lip service to, it, yeah. to inclusion and consultation, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. It's, it's wasted. Um, Go and join a political party, preferably Labor, and agitate. Mm. It's pow- this is power. People with power will not th- – they'll do what they want to until they're forced otherwise. Mm. And Australians at the moment just don't care about religion. So th- they'll just do what they want to do. And w- w- you're only cho- – you're wasting your breath, I think. You're wasting your, your time writing submissions – do it just for practice, mental energy, <laughs> like a crossword puzzle, yeah. Yeah. As a, basically as a preparation for creating talking points to give to some politicians who are actually in power who might listen. So um, it might do something. But actually giving submissions to this government, that, it's, it's a waste of time. Yeah, they, they it certainly looks that way. They have yeah. an agenda and they are following their agenda and pretending to consult the community. It's just pretending, isn't it? Mm. So there we go. It's it's frustrating. I'm getting some funny static through this line. Mm. You're getting some static. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But I wonder what's happening here. Let me just turn that down. I think that might be... That's okay now, isn't it? It's fine yeah. now. Okay. Um, there we go. It's... It's incredibly frustrating and, Scott, after, you know, it's just getting worse and worse. It is getting worse and worse. And, you know, I said to you when I gave you The uh, Handmaid's Tale the first season, I said that, you know, the world is two, perhaps three very bad decisions away from Gilead becoming a reality. (laughs) Mm. This is the first one, ScoMo. Mm. You've got this first one up. You'd better back away because we do not want people having to wear a particular type of clothing. Mm. Anyway. And what are you going to do about it, Scott? Sorry? What are you going to do about it? Well, me and Brian when will be on the wall. you see the dresses parading down the hall. No. Me and Brian will be on the wall if that happens because, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, same with economics. Uh, religion falls in the same category in that Australians have had it too good for too long. Yeah. We're and too they're not forced to examine these issues and um, 
you know, we've been lucky and we, we have haven't had a crisis. extraordinarily lucky. Yeah. And as a result, we don't have to examine these things. So um, let's think of a country that maybe hasn't been so lucky in, <laughs> over time. And, Mark, this is leading into you then. So, so Russia? What, what, yeah. yeah. What, what <laughs> happens I don't guess that one. What happens in a country when it um, is in crisis? Well, it's... I'm, I'm just going to start with, with, yeah. with a couple of things. Firstly, um, the world that we're living in today, as you said, um, uh, we are in very dangerous times at the moment. Um, we've got two, well, we've got one superpower, the United States, and we have another great power, the Russians, um, who simply don't trust each other, um, which makes it incredibly difficult to achieve um, anything. You have to say that there is, that, you know, today... Um, the Russian foreign minister met with um, the U.S. Secretary of State and then, of course, also with Donald Trump, uh, the U.S. president, to discuss a whole range of issues um, such as um, uh, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, um, which is something that um, hits both of them because the United States and uh, Russia have the largest stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction in the world. Are they um, both currently upgrading their weapon systems as well? They are. Um, the Russians have, since 2011, um, been engaged in a process of remilitarization. Um, in the, you know, the United States spends about, on average, about 600 to 700 billion uh, annually on defence. Uh, the Russians over the last eight, nine years have spent that amount of money on remilitarization because the Russian army um, was uh, in a state of disrepair in the 1990s, especially because of Afghanistan um, and also because of um, uh, military doctrine and also what happened in Chechnya where they were um, absolutely humiliated in the first Chechen war. Just, just interrupt. I have this image of the Russian economy being a basket case but how are they able to afford um, a military program if like wasn't that the whole point of reagan you know beat it's the russians Wars, because yeah. he well, because he outspent them and the russian economy just collapsed and it was all over sort of thing but but you're suggesting that that's not the case now no at the moment it's not the case the 1990s you know this is what happens with every especially the developing countries when they when we impose um, when the IMF and the World Bank impose um, neoliberal policies such as deregulation such as privatization of state enterprises did they impose it on on Russia this was this was you know when 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 the Soviet Union collapsed yep. and the Russian Federation came into existence in December 1991 um, the expectation well there were there were great hopes um, for Russia um, that they would join the West and that they would um, become what we'd call a normal nation state, mm. which, of course, they haven't and, and they won't. Um, uh, when they imposed these neoliberal policies with, uh, with deregulation, let's take price control for a minute, mm. um, when it was removed, because the, state, the, the, the Soviet state had price controls, when that was removed... Um, the cost of living went up. Say, for example, if you wanted to buy retail goods, um, when the prices were removed in one single month, the cost of retail goods went up 2,350%. Mm -hmm. 
um, inflation went through the roof. I think from memory it was between 1992 and 1995. They had inflation running anywhere between 200 and 300%. Um, they, uh, with the ruble, which is their currency, um, they depreciated it. Um, if you compare it now to what it was back then, it's, it's 66 US cents to the ruble. Um, back then it was pegged at about, firstly it was pegged at 144 rubles, but because of the way that the economy was, um, which it was in a state of disrepair, um, it was pegged at 5,000 rubles to the dollar. So, so is it like oil and gas that's leading the, the main, recovery? The is main, it? well, see, the thing is also another thing um, about the Russian economy is, of course, it is a, uh, a very resource-rich country. Now, the price of oil and gas was relatively low in the 1990s, and this mm. is why Yeltsin didn't have it so easy. Um, because uh, he wasn't able to benefit from, you know, in the in the early two thousands, and then in the in the first decade, um, when the price of oil um, increased, he didn't have that benefit. Mm. Um, but also um, the the uh, also another thing about this when you have um, when you had this, of course, with the deregulation, state state privatization. Of course, Russia is one of the most unequal countries in the world. Um, when the state enterprises were privatized, only a small elite were able to gain control of that. Yep. Uh, 10% of the Russian elite controlled 90% of the country's so presumably wealth. senior members of the Communist Party who were kind of Some in of charge of these sectors, just... Banking, uh, banking yep. sector, business people, yep. politicians. Now, Yuri yep. Lushkov, yep. the um, mayor of Moscow in 1994 when Yeltsin handed over uh, state enterprises to him, privatised them as well. He, he benefited quite handsomely mm. from... And they bought them relatively cheap. Well, yes, you say, well, well Moscow's a different case, but um, with, with the resources, Yeltsin sold a lot of the... Um, uh, a lot of the state-run enterprises at bargain basement price, and as a result, mm. the oligarchs, if, if, if you remember any of them, like Anatoly Chubais or, or, or Mikhail Kordakovsky, um, they bought them at bargain basement price. And, and my understanding was that they borrowed from Russian banks at really ridiculous interest rates and loans that they probably didn't even repay anyway that were sort of wiped out or who knows what well, happened. Well, the, Russian, the they... Russian government took mm. on the private debt that the USSR actually yeah. left behind. So that was part of the deal with the IMF and the, the World Bank. Now, another thing that we in Australia can't appreciate is the literal implosion of a state. Um, mm. or, when now Russia's, uh, you know, in the, in the rankings of 160 countries in the world, it ranks at, when it comes to safety, 154. Mm. Um, it, its security has improved markedly what, over the last... What kind of safety, Mark? Well, I'm talking about homicide rates. Okay, you know, when a, when a, when a country like that, this is what happened. It's like I, I've, I've heard it so many, on so many occasions from Russians, and they said to me, I want you to imagine this for one minute. When you have, when you have nothing... You've got a table, but you've got nothing you can eat. You can barely live. And the person who's sitting next to you is, has, is, is well-dressed, has got a lot of food, can actually eat. What do you do? When you have no hope, when you're desperate, 
what do you do? You steal you the take food. It off. This is the same analogy. Mm. This mm. is the same analogy for Chechnya as well. Mm. Um, and in 1990, when the Soviet Union still exists, homicide rates in Russia were uh, in the Soviet Union. Sorry, was 14.1 to 100,000 people. Um, Throughout the 1990s, after the establishment of the Russian Federation, it jumped to 20, between 20, and I think it was 1993, 1994, 32.1 mm. um, homicides per 100,000. Mm-hmm. That, that was, mm. Russia became particularly dangerous um, with uh, not only just homicides, but also kidnappings. You know, it's like mm. you hear people you know and say, they, they keep telling you, it's like, well, where is my friend gone? You know, it's like, I, I don't understand. And see, this is what happened in Russia. You know, when Russia became impoverished, it also meant that the rule of law all but collapsed. And Yeltsin is particularly hated for this um, because of what he did in the 1990s. He's, he was literally a lame duck president. Um, because he was heavily reliant on the oligarchs who were also widely hated in Russia um, because of, of, of what they consider, and, and, and rightly so, to be theft hmm. um, of, of state like assets. Hmm. And, of course, all the talk of democracy. I mean, Yeltsin turned the tanks on the parliament in 1992. Um, and then when the international community came, and this is something that you also hear as well, is that when... We were all talking about democracy for them. The United States helped to a certain extent with capitalization or the introduction of capital reforms, but they tended to ignore Russia. And the Russians turned to the Europeans uh, for assistance uh, in, demonstra- in, in, in establishing democratic structures. The Europeans said no. Really? Really? The Europeans said no. Who did they ask? They they turned to the Europeans, the Germans, the French. They said no. They Why didn't do want to think... help set up democratic. But well, you see, this is just it because everybody thought Russia was finished. Everybody thought Russia was, you know, this this is it. It's all gone. And you know, in 1999, virtually everybody thought, especially in the West, everybody thought that Russia was going to go the way of the Soviet Union because of what had happened over that decade. So did they think it would just fragment into a bunch of small states? It looked very much like it. You know, just imagine for a minute also hospitals which didn't have access to electricity where they actually had to get access to generators so that they could have um, access to electricity. Now imagine a hospital without electricity. Hmm. So just getting back to the economic side of things, I'm still trying to get my head around how they okay. can now afford to pay for things okay. because it Some sounds like all of the major resources were sold off cheap to oligarchs who presumably don't pay any tax. Now, this, comes, so, this is where Putin comes in. Right. Yeltsin wanted to, when he won the election um, in 1996, was looking for a successor. Now, he'd had a couple, you know, he, uh, it was a revolving door government. He'd sacked a number of prime ministers. And by the time 1999 came around, Chechnya was in the news again. Um, and he turned to Vladimir Putin, who was the head of the... Um, FSB? Yeah, the FSB, the, mm. the, the successor of the KGB. KGB. Yeah. Mm. And he turned to him because in Russia, trust is everything. And he trusted Vladimir Putin because he'd proven his mettle. 
And so he made him his prime minister and Putin promised that Yeltsin would not be prosecuted um, for his crimes. Now, this is where Putin comes in because Putin's an old KGB man and he's on record as saying that the, excuse me, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geostrategic catastrophe of the 20th century. Yep. He started a policy of renationalization. Uh-huh. So okay. the oligarchs who were in control were suddenly pushed aside and right. he started Gazprom. Um, well, Khodorkovsky or... ended up in jail. Mm. Uh, some of them ended up in, in, in the UK, like Berezov um, and uh, Litvinenko, et cetera, et cetera. And they probably ended up with bullets to the back of the head too, didn't they? Yeah. Right. Um, mm. And he literally took control of their resources. Now, Russia was massively in debt. So once he'd taken control and fixed economy he worked on paying back the debt because russia was massive and, and, and the debt uh, that they didn't okay, he re, he so he re, repaid he control. repaid back the mm. debt and so uh, russia and also it was also made possible by the rise in the price of oil yeah um in the 2000s yep. uh, and the decade after, after yeah, and no after doubt his favored cronies kept control of the the wealthy companies that they might have acquired and he took that's, took them off the guys true. that he didn't like. That's true. Yep. That's mm. true. Yep. Uh, okay. So that explains how they regained a sort of a financial capacity to then remilitarize. So, so in the news lately, there's been talk about these are all questions without notice, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sort of waiting yeah. here. So are we yeah. going to hear a question about yeah. are we in a new Cold War? Yeah. <laughs> so, no. Well, let's talk about NATO because. Yes. Uh, there was a NATO meeting recently and uh, Trump was embarrassed when they, behind his back, were talking about him. Mm. And, what you know, I, I was listening to a Dan Carlin podcast once and he was saying that these sort of treaties are dangerous because you've got, well, now NATO I think is about 30-odd countries or something yeah, like yeah. that, and they're all agreeing that if one of them is attacked, then one in, all in. And well, that's that's been policy since it was established in '49. Yeah, and as he said, you know, does America really want to go to war if if one of these obscure little countries is attacked by Russia, for example? Uh, I think and what you're referring to here is actually Turkey, um, right. because Turkey recently um, criticised the idea of protecting Poland and the Baltic states in case in case they went to war with Russia. Um, the problem. Um, with that is <clears throat> with <clears throat> I'm sorry NATO has expanded too far yeah absolutely um, you know the, the the problem the problem with NATO so the question is when NATO was first established in 49 its purpose was the defense of Europe against the Soviet yeah, Union West, mainly Western Europe yeah, of course well, Western Europe of course um, against the Warsaw Treaty Pact mm. uh, and those who were in the Warsaw Treaty and um, when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, um, James Baker, the, there's been recent classified documents that have been released um, in which the Secretary of State at the time, um, James Baker, made promises to President Gorbachev that NATO would not expand into the Eastern European countries. Uh, that's come out just recently, although um, the Russians have repeatedly said this is, was this was the case. Mm. Um, 
And when the Soviet Union collapsed, as I said, there was a tendency to to ignore Russia. In the first in the first administration, Bill Clinton didn't do anything. Um, but in the second term, then the expansion towards Poland, towards Hungary, um, it annoyed the Russians. And of mm. course, we also had these other wars in 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 um, in in the Balkans, of course, with with Yugoslavia um, breaking up, and of course, the Russians backing the Serbs. Um, and um, the Russians were not particularly happy that they couldn't, uh, that they weren't taken seriously about their concerns, not only with the expansion in Europe, but also um, with what happened in Kosovo in 1999 when um, Slobodan Milosevic engaged in a policy of, of, of uh, ethnic cleansing of the Kosovar Albanians. The, the Russians have a, a long history of backing their Slavic brothers, mm. um, and with the Serbs that's definitely the case. Mm. Um, so, um, so, so do you see Russia as, well, you mentioned before, do we, are we in another cold war and uh, do, do you see them as an, as an actively wanting to, I don't know, gather in more countries under their umbrella, um, <clears throat> uh, or are they really just fiddling around on Facebook and creating trouble for America <laughs> wherever possible? Or are, they, well, or are they genuinely under a... I mean, clearly China's under a program of Belt and Road and it's got, you know, things that we can watch and see and there's plans in a foot there that we can observe. But with Russia, to me, it just sort of seems like if they can disrupt and cause a problem for... America in particular, they will, but I don't know that there's a, a, I'm, I'm not a concerted so sure. I, sort I'm of not plan. I'm not so sure I agree mm. with that. I, okay. I, I, I think that the expansion of NATO into areas which were former Soviet republics, um, the first question is what on earth is NATO doing in Georgia? Georgia's mm. not a European country. Mm. It has no connection with Europe. It's not a member of the European Union. The question is, like I said before, and it needs to be posed, is what is NATO for? But but neither is Turkey. A yes, I know. Country. But you know, it's, if you're going to include, if you're going to include, well, you know, the Europeans well, well, have well, said the Europeans have already said Turkey's not going to be. You know, but, it's like, but, but NATO is just an anti-Russian device. What, what, how about that? If that, well, if, if we go, if we go, for, if we go with that, it's, it's yeah. just you see, the Russians have this. You know, uh, you know, and you 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 see this when we you know, we see things the way we see them. And they see things the way they see them. We have a, a complete uh, dichotomy. There's there's complete difference in perceptions. You see, the Russians see the expansion of NATO as a threat to them. Um, with good reason. With good reason. With good reason, I just, reason absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with you there. I don't think that expanding NATO towards Russia's frontiers was a very wise policy. It was bloody stupid. Well, well is it? But if you're was, if, no, if, 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 if NATO is an anti-Russian device, yeah, then okay. you would then want to bring in as many countries as you could, can, and you'd want to, you'd and, want them right up against the Russian Russia, border. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Exactly, Russia? and that's exactly what they did when Russia was on their knees. That's what mm. they said to them. They said, well, "What are you going to do?" And so, what could so, Yeltsin do except say nothing? You know. Right. So well, anyway, so I don't know that it was stupid. It, it to, was stupid. It was well, insane. The question, the question must be asked is, if yeah. we're going to include Georgia, do we include Armenia? Do we include, include Azerbaijan? That would also make, make the case. Can we in, include Iran? Because Azerbaijan has a border with Iran. Yeah. <laughs> well, Iran is an enemy of, of the yeah. West, so they wouldn't well, be Well, you know, I mean, Azerbaijan is culturally 
uh, linked to Iran because they have a majority Shia population. But um, is there any talk of Azerbaijan joining NATO? No, but I mean, if you have a look where Georgia is, yeah, it's, next to, it's next to Armenia, it's next to Azerbaijan. Yeah, but th- th- there needs to be a little bit more than just being next to a NATO country. Yes, I know, but I mean, this, is, this would then be the next argument. Mm. Where are we going to take NATO? But I, my understanding is that the Russians are especially uncomfortable with the idea of NATO countries bordering Russia. You know, they're, they're right, almost right smack up against the Russian border in some areas, aren't well, they? Well, you know, Particularly Poland, is, Poland is, a, is a NATO country. Well, the Baltic you, states. The Baltic states are right up there. You and know, there it's are just, was, significant Russian ethnic minorities that migrated into the Baltic states or were already there, I'm well, not sure. I, I don't think the Russians will invade the Baltic states. They don't have any reason to do so. Except um, it gives them access well, to greater no, you're gonna, you're access Well, no, you're going to, to use the, the argument, sea. well, yes, that might be the case, but what, what is there in the Baltic Sea that they can take control of? Well, Finland? it just gives them access to the, to the you know, well, the they have that with Kaliningrad. They have Germany. that with Kaliningrad. Yeah, but Kaliningrad know. is on the Baltic Sea, so they've already got access to mm-hmm. it, and they're building a, a you know the the, the North, Stream, North Stream pipeline uh, through you know, through the Baltic Sea. Denmark's given its approval for the the finalisation, so that will allow gas to go to uh, in, into 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 Germany. So I mean, the argument that you know they they, they don't have an access to to, to the Baltic okay. Sea is is, yeah. is, is false. can somebody explain to me why? A pipeline from Russia has to go through Denmark to get to Germany. Well, because of the way the situation, because of the way the seas are, part of Denmark borders Germany. Right? Yes, so but it doesn't border still, Russia. No, but you see, that doesn't need to border Russia. It goes above Poland through Denmark and into Germany. Above Why Poland, would they go through yes, Poland into Germany. Denmark doesn't border Poland. No, but it has a border with Germany. And part of the seas there is is part of Danish has Danish sovereignty. So it's got to be a you got to build this pipeline through the ocean, do you? Yeah, that's what they're doing. Oh, oh. I didn't that's what that's what that's what they that's what they're actually doing also um, with the gas pipeline. pipeline. Yes, it's an undersea pipeline. Oh, I didn't that's what know they, that. That's what they're also doing with with Bulgaria because um, there is also Southern Stream, which is being built. Um, through Turkey up into uh, up through the Balkans and into Bulgaria as well. So I'm not aware of this pipeline issue. What's the problem? What well, there people- is no there is no problem. It's just right. that well there is because the United States doesn't like it okay, and because but- everybody is concerned and the Europeans but- are also concerned that this will be used as uh, a bargaining chip by Moscow um, because right. um, at present they get their gas through the Ukraine and with. The new so well now there's a new deal. The Russians were actually going to cut off the gas to the Ukraine, but um, they're not. So now. they they're, might no. Use they're it as actually a they're not. Chip. They're not. I mean they've used you know the Ukrainians didn't use it as a bargaining chip anyway in the past. Okay, um, so they've previously been getting their gas from Russia yeah, through but, the Ukraine. Yeah, through the Ukraine. So now, now it's going to go through go a different through, route. Yes. Yeah. So it's just an alternative route. That's so it. if they were worried about Russia cutting it off previously. This doesn't alter that possibility. No, but you see, the United States is concerned, as are other members of the European Union, that this will be used as a bargaining chip by Moscow to extract concessions. So if, if, if Germany or other Western European countries become dependent on Russian gas and then the Russians say, well, we, we might just turn off the gas if you don't do what we want. Is that what you mean? And that's exactly what they've done in Ukraine. Mm. They've turned the gas yeah. off a number of times. In so the they've Ukraine. demonstrated a willingness to, to do things like that, have mm. they? Mm. 
So just getting back to the question then, do you think Russia is a player with with grand designs or you No, I think I think the, just, the current president is rather reactionary rather than having any sort of aggressive uh, aggressive designs. Everybody attributes this man as being uh, you know, with with a strategic design because yeah. of his intervention in Syria, um, but there's uh, and of course what happened in Georgia with Abkhazia and South Ossetia and is that, well and the Crimea, but um, so it's a bit more of an opportunist well, than a Machiavellian well, you know, sort of strategy I, 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 guy. I, I think with with Crimea it's a different situation as opposed to some of the others, simply because uh, the Crimea is was um, an open. Uh, in particular, Sevastopol, the capital, uh, was an open city, which which included both Ukrainian and Russian sailors. Um, and the majority of the population is, in fact, Russian. So a lot of people who have been jumping up and down about the uh, referendum issue don't seem to take into consideration that there are two and a half million people. There was a census done in 2014. Um, there were two, and I think it was two and a half million people who lived in Crimea. And... The Russian population was 1.7 million, which makes up about 67% of the population. I think it's probably more now because that census was done six years ago. Mm. Uh, and all the arguments that, oh, you know, it's like, and also these, these comparisons between, between Putin and Hitler are really unhelpful because, you know, it attributes him a policy and attaches him to Hitler that he doesn't have. Hitler had every intention of going to war. I don't see a man who has any intention of going to war. Mm. Okay, so on this podcast, we like to talk about different cultures and the differences between people. So, for example, when we speak of Japanese, we talk about how, well, they've got a certain view of society and they value community and society. Mm. We look at the United States, very much freedom of the individual. Um, Australia, a little bit of the case of Tall poppy syndrome, we try and cut people down. We like to think we're egalitarian. How much we are in recent times is up for question. So different countries, you know, the sort of humour that you would get in the UK doesn't translate to America. And, yeah, different countries have a culture. Um, What would Russian culture, like as a people, are Russians um, got anything that sets them apart from... From well, others? Russia. Well, we, we, so. we'll look at the geography because this is what they are. You know, I mean, what influences the Russians? Their geography. You know, Russia makes up ten percent of the world land mass. Now, it's in the seventeen hundreds. Um, Peter the Great decided he was going to move the capital to Saint Petersburg. So, one because his family was murdered, and so he decided he wanted to escape. He wanted to escape the, the the politicking in Moscow, but also too because he wanted to modernize Russia and turn it towards the West. Now, you also talked about China a minute ago, and and Russia is you know it's it's got most borders uh, with any other country in the world. Mm. Um, it has a bit of an, a, a different identity. On the one hand, it sees itself as European, but it also has its own traditional. Um, traditional culture. It, they they went through an identity crisis in in the nineteen nineties because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, and so hundred they've got one hundred and forty six million people. So there's a tendency to see themselves more towards Europe and European culture, um, and you certainly feel that when you go to Saint Petersburg. Um, when you're in Saint Petersburg, you feel like you're at, you are at an imperial capital. 
Mm. Um, and that was clearly the intention. Um, but also, you know, there's this Western orientation um, also with the elite, um, you know, of the 146 million people, there are 110 million who live in uh, towards, towards Europe. Beyond the Urals, mm. it's about 20%, so about 30-odd million people. So, um, so most Russians live in the Western part of that vast country. Yes. That's correct. And, and is that because it's just better farmland and better, um, is, well, is it just harder there's, living there's, in the other parts? It's harder living in the east. I mean, the, mm. the, the infrastructure is not as well developed as it is in the west. Mm. Um, and this is where Russia also comes into play because it's, it's, it, it is, like I said before, a resource-rich country. Gas, oil, timber, gold, aluminium. Um, and a lot of that hasn't been developed or is in the process of being developed. And, and, and um, when we talk about China before, you said that Russia, you know, everybody says, you know, Russia's aggressive and, you know, we're heading towards the West and everything. It's like if anyone bothers to read their national security strategy, you'll see that there's concerns with China as well. Um, there's all this talk about there being a... a you know, a, a great alliance with China, but their their interests are too di divergent. Um, and with uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative, um, uh, building infrastructure into Turkmenistan, into the stands, into Kazakhstan, um, will uh, irritate Moscow mm. um, because. Um, because they were formerly Soviet. Well, they were former Soviet republics, republics. and the Russians wished to keep their influence in these yeah. areas. Yeah. Um, and not only that, Russia also has its memories of the Mongolian invasions in the 1300s. Mm -hmm. And so it looks on the east with suspicion as well. Um, Re really? Yeah. The, like, well, like yes, mo yes, yes I know, but you see, they Russians were occupied. Are still they still, you see, history plays still scarred a, by the Mongols. Yeah, it's hard well, they were occupied for three hundred years, mm. um, and they well, the Serbs, in a sense, well, they go back uh, to the forgotten. back to the the war against the Albanians. Well, against the uh, uh, was it against Ottoman the Albanians, Turks. the Ottoman Turks. I do apologise. Yeah. Yes, mm. um, and so Russia, you know, the the, the president and and and. All Russians I've met see themselves as a great power. So for them, Velika Derjava, uh, which means great power, um, and for them to have any alliance with with China would mean that they'd have to sub, sub, you know, uh, be subservient to Beijing. So, so, and so that, your that average your average Russian hasn't accepted the demise of Russia as a the, as a, the as a world well, power. It's, well, it's not going to accept it. They see mm. themselves. You see, they ever since 1993. And that was in their national security doctrine back then. It's been military doctrine to get Russia back to a stage where it is respected as a great power. And it's actually achieved that by and large. Um, because every time, you know, the United States acts at will whenever it wants, or it has until just recently. But when it comes to Russia, it always has to think before it does something. Well, well Russia, uh, America acts at will against any country that doesn't have a nuclear bomb. <laughs> so... It's like North Korea, like a, a tiny mm. tin pot country, mm. but they've got a nuclear bomb that they can drop on uh, someone like Japan potentially. So uh, 
so that's the that's the whole point, isn't it? I mean, if Russia didn't have nuclear weapons, America would be all over it by now. Oh, but, I don't but, know. But that's, that's so. Have that's I persuaded you, Trevor? Australia needs its own nukes. No, no I don't think we need our own nukes. Yeah. No, that's not going to work. We can be our own tin pot dictatorship. <laughs> <Yeah. don't we? laughs> You really want to? So, you really want Skomo to have that red button? Oh please, no, 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 no! no you do no. not want Skomo to we'll have that red button. Skomo He'll start departs. his own religious wars. Mm. <laughs> he, he might. Yeah. He might. It'll be like, oh, mm. God, no. so, so, what else should Australians know about Russia? Well, they're not as cold as people make it out to be. It's not right. as dangerous as people make it out to be. When you right. say cold, the people you mean? Yes, the, I mean the people. You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stereotypes of the Russians. Oh. They're not as cold as people. I, make I have an image of bad food. Food's really good. Really? Oh, absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah, there I was just, this Euro Cafe up in. Um, and if you want to find out, there's a Russian restaurant in the city too. By the way, yeah, there is. Right. And it's tra- traditional yeah. Russian. Food? But what's it like? Well, it's boiled cabbage and yeah, that's, no, that's my image. Of meatballs, <laughs> potatoes, and sauerkraut. Well, there oh, is the sauerkraut's oh, German. Oh, okay, there is borscht. borscht. You know, you what, borscht, borscht what's yeah. borscht? That's beetroot soup, which is beetroot soup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. it tastes really good. You have no idea, man. Seriously, yeah. it makes you your wee. Oh, a funny colour, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've never had any problems in the past. Mm. <laughs> you know, borscht, and then you've got also the, they, they've also got a dumpling. Or the yeah, yeah. the mustard yeah. yeah, of course. And and have you heard any reaction to the news about Russia being banned from the Olympic Games and the the Russians World are Cup? not happy, right? Um, of course, uh, of course. Um, the I only found out about it today, so I haven't seen all the responses okay. just yet. But um, I just wonder whether the average Russian in the street can get a grip on what's happening in the world. Like, presumably, their media. Well, the Russians, the Russians are very. You know, they have a very uh, educated society. So, so, do they have full access to the internet? Can they access Western media, for example? From what I saw when I was there, I had no problems accessing Western okay. media. Okay. So if they see this allegation by uh, the World Drug Authority that Russia engaged in this um, doping scandal and, and fraudulent and all the rest of it, would the average Russian then think, whoops, we got caught and okay, fair enough, hands up? Like, mm, or is it like, oh, it's no, a conspiracy think, against think, us and it's, it's the Western you know, powers been, picking on this us? Is, this is where we're at. Right. That's that's where this lack of trust is coming in. Mm. Um, as you know, I'll... I'll during the Soviet times, you know, the, the, the Russians hated the White House. They hated the Pentagon. They didn't hate the Americans. That's completely changed. Right. All of it. And they see this as a conspiracy. Now, the Prime Minister I saw this morning, Dmitry Medvedev, said that there is some, uh, you know, there is something wrong with, with, with our... Um, with our uh, sporting system, or not so much the sporting system, but the sports sporting admi- agency, the sports administration. Yeah, sports administration. Yeah. He did admit that there were some problems, oh, well, but go. he thought, but he thought that it was overblown. Um, Putin said that they will uh, that they will um, appeal against this, and said that they had every right to appeal against it. See, thing is, when you with them, when you when you try and exclude. Because I don't think that all the I don't think that all the, the, the I don't think all the athletes 
uh, have engaged in systematic doping. I find that very hard to believe. Um, well, they were given an out, of course. Yeah, they were given an out, but, you know, I mean, I, they've been told, you know. I mean, who's going to, I mean, seriously, would you, if you were a Russian, say, hey, I want the Olympic flag to fly for me? I don't think so. And, you know, I mean, in Pyeongchang in 2018, when the, the Russian team was banned, of course, they were given an out with a neutral neutral status yes. where they could actually participate in uh, Pyeongchang and the, 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 the Winter Olympics. Mm. They won the ice hockey. Did they sing the song of, uh, of of the Olympic Games? Russian anthem, why not? It annoyed a lot of people, but the Russians were intensely proud. They won the ice. They, they've got a really good ice hockey team. Mm. And, and and they see a lot of this as, uh, as a conspiracy against them because they see that only they are being excluded. Mm. And so as a result, they're going to feel this way. Right. Well... So as a player on the world stage, it seems to me that they're earning some income via natural resources, but uh, and they might threaten to withhold that um, in terms of the pipeline and they might sabre-rattle in terms of weaponry, but really they have fallen by the wayside and provided they're not attacked by anybody, there's not much that they're going to do. That and, depends. And, that that and, will all depend on what certain actors do. Hmm. Um, you know whether, um, you know, the, with the Chinese thrust south into um, the South China Sea, they are now affecting Russian economic interests. Um, yes, because um, oh yes, oh yes, you know, in Vietnam, the Russians are helping the Vietnamese because you know, every you know everybody looks at Russia and says, oh, they they're just looking at China. There is, it's true there is a Sinocentric approach, but they've realized that that's a, a zero-sum game. So they've expanded out. They've sold weapons to India. They're working with Vietnam. Uh, they're even working with South Korea. Um, so so what, what do they do? What do the Russians do in South Korea? Well, trade. There's not, there's not oh, much, okay. that, you know, it's like... Yeah, it, what it's would trade. the South Koreans want to buy off the Russians except perhaps uh, oil? Gas. Mm. Exactly, but mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, there are, there are, there are, you know, I mean, it, it, it's I the South it's, Koreans have a, a, a highly developed uh, manufacturing base mm. now, and they produce goods that are probably far superior to the average Russian um, industrial goods. Mm. Mm. Um, but let's get back to Vietnam because they they do a lot of trade with Vietnam, and also they're helping the the, the Vietnamese with their oil drilling. Right. And with the Chinese coming south. In the that, South China Sea. Yeah, yes. yeah. Oh, okay. And the helping the Vietnamese, that's, that threatens their economic interests. So whether how Russia reacts to that is, is you know, they, they've, they've been involved with China with the, um, with the uh, annual military exercises and everything. But so Russia's, Russia's a bit Did you see the China. news that a new bridge has just opened over a strategic river linking China with Russia? And I read that. Yes, that, 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 uh, that I've seen. Yeah, and... and it was stated that that was to facilitate greater trade between mm. Russia and China. Yeah. It's in the Russian Far East, of course. Well, yes, of course. Well, the Russian Far East is, um, sorry, it's not, it, it's not as well developed as it could be. Mm. Um, but the, they'll, they'll, they will, um, they're working on, on that, although that'll take some time for them mm -hmm. to develop. Mm -hmm. And what's the feeling in Russia in terms of um, communism? So, 
I haven't haven't asked anyone about that, I have to say. But, you know, there there is a... Is Russia... How communist is Russia? It's not. It's not. Right. So, so do average people pay tax? Yes, they do. They do. That was another reason why they had problems in in the 1990s, because they weren't paying tax. So, they pay tax. Well, they didn't have a tax system. They own property. Is it? Is it? Are there anything? Any differences that that uh, other than a failure to hold proper elections, which isn't necessarily a feature of communism, but just but in terms of communism as an economic idea, is Russia communist? No, uh, it's right. not. It's, it's completely capitalist. It's gone completely capitalist. Right. And and you know, I mean, the Russians that I have engaged, you know, I mean, and also there was an opinion poll done a few years ago by uh, by Washington Post. Um, in some of the former Soviet republics and also in um, in Russia. And the vast majority of those countries said that they lamented the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, I, I, I you know, it's it's a feeling, but I, I don't think we'll ever see the Soviet Union ever come back. Right. I don't think any of us are expecting to. Are no, they? no, I don't. I, well, you know, I mean, that's that's another thing, you know. It's like that's that's part of the the, the Cold War argument that we're at, you know. But he intends on re-establishing the Soviet Union. It's not. No, no. I think but he'd he like has, to, but I don't think he can. But he has, in a well, sense, established a, a replacement authoritarian state, hasn't it? He's, well, how can it be a replacement when it was already authoritarian previously? Hmm. But that's my point. It may not be a Just, communist authoritarian state, but it's a kind of authoritarian state with a capitalist economic uh, system, isn't it? I think you yeah. can say that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Anyway. Well, this I had a discussion with a friend of the show, Mr Anderson, the other day because mm. we were talking about communism and whatever, yeah. and I said, well, really, communism is about, um, you know, not having capital in the hands of a few mm. and it's it's an economic Theory, it is, yeah. but it gets associated with a lack of democracy and totalitarian yeah. dictators. But that's that's not actually part of the of the original the, of the manual theory of communism, or even just the economic theory. It, it's just an economic theory. It doesn't have that political theory of a dictatorship. It just so happens that every communist goes regime that, that we've had yes. it goes, it either goes starts fascist, that yeah. way, yeah, because once you concentrate power so, in the hands of a of a few, uh, you know, leaders of the party or whatever, right. they tend to become drunk on power and uh, and jealous of, and jealously guard that power, and they eliminate rivals and they become dictators. Mm. So, yeah. So anyway, Russia really not communist at all. Just, just. It's, it's do you think a, the a capitalist country with a dictator? Are Russians are happy people? Do you think? Are they content with the way things are? From what I've seen, yeah. Um, but, you know, they're not going to tell you. Um, Why not? Well, you know, unless you know them really well, they're not exactly going to tell you. But, you know, I mean, some of them, you know, some of them that I met seemed really, really happy. But, you know, I mean, the the, the system they have in place, you know, the, there are two catchwords. This is what we talked about before with democracy is for them stability and security is really important. That's that's part of the overall system mm. that Putin has in place is there's a social contract in that if you provide us with prosperity, you give us, you know, you give us good economic times, we'll keep you there. That's a social contract. And we'll and let you murder, murder your political rivals. 
Well, you know, I mean, like I said before, they've never had democracy and they're not going to, you know, and, and, and the argument, and you said it before, Scott, is they don't want it, you know. Mm. I, I, I've spoken, you know, when, before I came here, I spoke with a couple of other friends and they, they all said to me that they thought the whole concept of democracy was just completely alien to them. It's like we don't know what it is. And because of their experiences of the 1990s, they just don't want it. I think they remember they remember the bad old days, and you know the people who did live, um, you know, in, at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union and 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 into in, into the, the the first decade of the Russian Federation, um, and 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 remember it. You know, one of them said to me. Um, and this is something again that we find really hard to to, to, to imagine. Now, imagine this. This was towards the end of Gorbachev's years. Um, imagine that your grandmother has run out of food in the middle of winter. You're looking at probably minus twenty, minus thirty degrees, and you have to go and stand in a queue. You know, this this was typical of Russia in the late eighties, early nineties. Was that or Soviet Union late late early late eighties and Russia early nineties? Was that you had to get up four o'clock in the morning, get dressed, go and stand in a queue, have a number written on your hand, and you know you, they did that so that nobody else pushed in, and you'd have to wait two maybe three hours to get food. Mm. Something we we would find really really difficult to to comprehend. <laughs> but wasn't that the case right through the years of the Soviet Union? No, not always. No. No, the 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 queues came about uh, in the late eighties. Mm. But they were, I mean, it wasn't as if their shops were overflowing with no. But you see, you see, even with consumer goods, yeah. But even even and, and and more more to the point, Ukraine was was the breadbasket of the Soviet oh, Union. Mm. Oh yeah, the Ukraine was what provided a lot of its agriculture, mm. and so when they lost that. Um, there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of empty shelves mm. as far as food and staple food was concerned. Mm. And that's that's just something we hear, you know, we go to the supermarkets and everything. We have everything ready made and it's like, what can I choose today? Mm. Just imagine just going there. Like, we're spoiled for choice. We really are. Mm. I think that apathy about democracy mm. would be... I think that's really dangerous. I well, think the apathy we have in our dem democratic system is really dangerous. Well, well, I think the same would apply in China. So my experience with some Chinese homestays is that really, I mean, they've been living in Australia and seeing our democracy for a number of years. No, <laughs> they don't. It's like, like it. do you think it'd be a good idea to have democracy in China? And they're like, nah, not really. Like. They, they're used to their system a bit like the Russians. They don't and see they, it as relevant, do they? No, they're not about to march in the streets and, and demand it. They, don't, mm. they really don't care. They are fine with the current system. Um, as you say, it's about that contract. If you're providing us with, mm. if we're getting on, if we've got food in our bellies, somewhere to sleep, and, yeah. and it seems like the economic situation is okay, well, has, then we'll put up with okay, a lot of things. The, the imposition of sanctions has made things difficult, but mm. they've adapted over the years since the imposition mm. of sanctions and the Russians have imposed sanctions on the Europeans and the United States as well. So mm. it's all a bit of a... The Russians have imposed sanctions? Yeah, they, you know, it's like what the Russians... What kind of sanctions? Well, economic sanctions. You know, Europe... No borscht for Europe, you. Well, no borscht. <laughs> well, no, you see, Europe does... 40% of its trade is with Russia. And you know, for they resources. Were, no, not just that. Food. You know, the Russians imported a lot of food from from Europe. Now all of a sudden, it stopped. 
Um, so the Europeans have lost out. So oh, where are they getting their food from? Lost yeah, um, they're getting a lot of lost exports. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, although the Germans and the French have taken, and particularly the business business world in Germany and, and France, have tried to get tried to get the governments there, uh, you know, um, lighter sanctions or, you know, if they, if they could avoid not having sanctions at all. But, but can they find, not find the same food from other sources? They're developing themselves. Um, like Spain? You know, yeah, well, you see the Spanish. Italy. Got, yeah, uh, but you see, you see by imposing sanctions on those countries where they actually got them from and also because Spain and, and um, you know, those countries are a part of European Union, yeah. the European Union's got sanctions on, on Russia. So whatever happens with, within the European Union, although Austria and, of course, Hungary um, have been, uh, and more recently Bulgaria, um, have been working on improving relations with Moscow. So um, it will be interesting to see what happens in Europe because um, next year or the year after, I think Angela Merkel will be gone. Yeah. Um, and whoever replaces her is going to have to deal with Moscow. Now, she she speaks – she's unlike her predecessor, Gerhard Schroeder, who, who took a very pragmatic approach to Moscow and was very Moscow-friendly. She's been heavily critical of the Russians. Because she grew um, up in East Germany. Yeah, she? she did. That's right. Yeah. Mm. When you say they've got to deal with the Russians, well, like I said, with Bulgaria, mm. they've been improving their relations because you know, obviously, the Slavic Brothers, but also gas. You know, it's it's mm. all about money. Mm. Um, the Austrians, you know, that there there is sanction fatigue in Europe. It you know it affects Europe more than it does the United States because the, the 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 scale of trade done by the United States with Russia is negligible, mm. whereas the Europeans are more directly affected by the sanctions. Yeah. So yep. you know it's like forty percent of their trade is done with Russia, and as a result, now they've got those sanctions and counter sanctions that really badly affects oh, the, okay. the Europeans as well. Hmm. Dear listener, this ended up being a long one, and on the advice of Mrs. Fist, I've decided to split it into two and we'll carry on with the remainder of this podcast next week which means that next week we'll probably spend time recording episodes which will then carry us over the christmas period so that works out quite well so uh we're going to finish off uh part way through our talk uh with mark and we get on to other things europe generally and then we revert back to some domestic affairs so uh that will be next week but for the moment um Thanks for tuning in and catch up with part B of this podcast next week. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast so there's different levels ranging from 
$1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.